in the days of the early church, they were going through trials and tribulations and persecution for what they believed about Jesus Christ. And we will see as we've approached this gospel, the gospel of John, the final of the four gospels that were written, that he was writing for a reason. He had seen the persecution. He had endured persecution. If you don't know the story of John as an apostle, they've tried to kill him and persecute him for years. He's the one disciple that endured, and he didn't just live, but he wrote about the gospel. He wrote about the good news as a, and in the latter part of his life. He was very effective and relevant and was able to bring some revelation to what the other Gospels maybe didn't discuss. You see them talk about different stories that he didn't include. He was writing for a specific reason. And as I've said, every time that I open this, I say that in John chapter 20, he writes, I am writing these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal life. So as you read through every chapter, every verse, you need to be having the perspective that he was trying to get across. Why is he writing this? He's writing something that I may believe, that I may have this enduring faith like he had. He wants me to have such a solid faith, not just come to salvation. This isn't just for new people and new believers. Like we always point people, you want to start with the book of John. Why the book of John? Oh, because it'll show you about Jesus, and it's that first gospel that you should cut your teeth on. No, it isn't just about having belief in Jesus. It's about having a sustaining faith that you believe in him so much that you have a personal relationship with him that cannot be shaken because you know who he is, that he is good, and that's what this is about. And so as we approach chapter 7, we're going to start to see some of the persecution that came into Jesus' life and how he handled that in his life. And so what we're going to see is I believe Jesus shows us what true faith really should look like in challenging times. John chapter 7, we're going to read the first 24 verses this Sunday, and I'm going to gradually go through them. But verse 1 says, After these things... Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Just real quick, these are regions, not cities. And so there's Galilean cities, there's areas that are considered Galilee, those areas that are considered, considered Judean areas. But what does it mean, before we even get started in this chapter, that John would write after these things? Because they're going to be relevant to what Jesus deals with. Going back to chapter 5, after these things is referencing after the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda because it was there that the man was healed on the Sabbath that initiated, if you remember back in chapter 5, the very beginning of the religious leaders, that sect of Pharisees that wanted to kill Jesus because he broke the Sabbath rules, but also because he was claiming to be God himself. And so it was after this, this is the stirring up, and now we're going to start to see that there's legs to the words of what they said. This is after the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, and after last week where I already mentioned what Ed preached on, where Jesus literally lost the majority of his followers, people who called themselves followers of Jesus, people who in today's world probably would say, I go to church or I'm a Christian, or I believe. They were the fans of Jesus. 
He's what's hip. He's what's new. He's what's stirring people's emotions and feelings. And, and I like this sort of thing that's taking place. And he says good words. He makes us feel better about ourselves. He's healing all of these really fluffy, nice, lovey-dovey, good things. And then Jesus realizes that the people that are following him, that there's a large majority that are just following him for what he can do for them, not because they believe in him. And so he challenges him with the words that he is the bread from heaven. What is that referencing? That he came from heaven himself, that he is the bread of life, that in him there is life. Those are crazy words. They're not just words that a good man would say. He tells them that whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life. Like, you think you're that big, that important? Yes, he does. And the majority of them would fall away. So after these things, and if you look at the rest of the gospel, what's important for us to even have in our mind is that he would spend approximately, we know this from from the feast to the next feast, because John references the time of Jesus' ministry through the labeling of the feasts, is that there was about six months between Passover and Sukkot. And that in that time frame, it's probably when Jesus spent the majority of his time really discipling, teaching his disciples, spending time with them. And you will see that in the other three Gospels and the stories they share about what took place in, the, in Galilee and all of the, the miracles and the reaching out to people. But John doesn't address any of that because it's already been addressed. And so he focuses on what he feels is the most important thing for us to believe. And he describes a specific feast. Now, why would he bring up this feast? Is it just words in the Bible? Or is not every word relevant in God's Bible? in his word, in his scriptures. And so he references the Feast of Tabernacles. Some of yours might say the, the Feast of, of Tents or whatever, because there's different names for it. But really it's Sukkot in the Hebrew term, Feast of Tabernacles. And what did the Feast of Ta Tabernacles represent? We celebrate this feast when it takes place every year. It's the crazy feast that I call uh, is supposed to be where people run around with branches in their hands, representing something that we're going to see actually take place later in this chapter. But it's important for us to understand why would Jesus reveal himself, which he's going to do in this chapter, to thousands and thousands and thousands of people, except for this feast is about three things specifically. It is about the fact that this is a celebration, and it's a celebration that is supposed to be the biggest celebration of the year. It's a week-long party in Jerusalem, and it's one of the three pilgrimage feasts that men were supposed to travel to, and so there'd be thousands of people that would be caravanning to Jerusalem. They would build these tents, and they would live in those tents, and it would be a reminder of what God did for his people, for the Israelites in the desert, that he provided for them miraculously, that God is our provider, Jehovah Jireh, that he was their protector, that in the desert there was no harm that would come to them outside of God saying, hey, you guys jacked up. Other than that, like they didn't even need shoes, right? Clothes, you don't see any of that taking place. God provided miraculously, 
uh, for them in everything that they needed. He provided protection for them. If they were following after him, not even a nation could come against them. And that finally, it's a celebration of God's presence being with man. He walked with them in a cloud by day and a fire by night, that he was with his people. And it was a foreshadowing as they would celebrate this feast that God would someday dwell with his people again. And what a greater time for Jesus to show up on the scene and claim who he was, except for him to be able to essentially say that I am God in the flesh. I am walking with you. Once again, I am, I, I am walking this out, and we look to this feast that someday Jesus will return, and we will dwell with him, not just for a season, but for eternity. This is the feast that celebrates God being with man, and Jesus shows up and proclaims he's God. In verse 3, it says, His brothers, knowing this, they said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. Like if you want to be known openly by everybody, then don't do it in secret. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. So listen, Jesus' brothers are either encouraging him, they're encouraging him to go to the feast to show thousands and thousands of people who would be Judeans, who would be Jews like him, who he really is and what he can do. Now, why in the world would you think that his brothers would encourage him to do that? I don't know if they knew that the Pharisees were wanting to kill him or not. That wouldn't be very nice of them if that was the case. Some people, and I've read different theologians, and here's where we got to be careful is picking a side, is that some would say that Jesus' brothers were actually mocking him and making fun of him. Oh, if you think you're this great thing, then why are you hiding over here in the little Galilee rural areas of the community doing all these things and not going to Judea, especially on a feast like this where there will be thousands of people that you could reveal yourself to, and they're kind of mocking him and making fun of him. But there's also some theologians that believe that what the brothers were doing is they're like, hey, you know, our brother's getting famous. And maybe that there's some aspect that they want him to gain even more fame because they would be connected to that fame in some way. But they're pushing him to actually make himself known, even though they really don't believe in him. What I want to say about these verses is that let's not split hairs. The why doesn't matter. As much as the fact that his brothers did not believe in him. Like, listen, these guys have witnessed the miracles. They've heard the teachings. And yet, do you know that in Mark 3, it says that his brothers heard what Jesus was teaching? They wanted to go get him. You want to know why? Because they thought he was crazy. That's what it says. His own family thought he was crazy for the things that he was saying. Like we, 2,000 years later, there's people that will say, oh, Jesus was a good teacher, he was a good prophet, he was a good man, but he wasn't God. And the truth is, why would you not believe what his own family believed about him? They believed at least that he was crazy. They understood when he was saying that I'm the bread from heaven, that I'm the bread of life. They understood what he was saying. We may not understand it in today's world because we distanced ourselves and we don't want to accept the fact that Jesus is who he is Right? And so we deny that he's God, but his own family understood the fact that he was calling himself God and they thought he was crazy. So either you believe that he's God or you think he's crazy. They thought he was literally crazy. But is it possible they were excited about the miracles 
And how could you see the miracles and hear the teachings but have such unbelief? Can you imagine what it's like, and maybe some of you do, to literally be rejected by your own family for what you believe? Some of you understand what does it feel like when you're rejected by your own family. And now just imagine being in Jesus' sandals for a minute. In these verses, we'll not only see that Jesus is rejected by his own siblings, that his family has rejected him, but his fellow Jews, his, quote, brothers beyond the flesh and blood brothers, the people of his nation, the people that were around him have rejected him, the religious people who he's trying to help point people toward God, but the other religious people that are supposed to be pointing people toward God they reject him too. Essentially, if you want to look at Jesus' life and where he was in that century, is that pretty much everybody but a few were rejecting who he was. Imagine that kind of rejection in your life. You have but a few that are around you that might believe in you. And yet we'll see how Jesus responds to their unbelief and their absolute rejection. And what I'm going to pull out of here this morning is what I would say is four aspects of true faith. In verse 6, it says, Then Jesus said to them, So they've rejected him, potentially mocked him or encouraged him, though they didn't believe in him. And Jesus' response to them is, my time has not yet come. But your time is always already. Verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Some of your Bible translations may not have the word yet in there. And that's a manuscript difference between the older manuscripts that I've explained before why there's differences in some translations and the newer manuscripts that they, have, that they have. So the older manuscripts, once again, just real quick so you understand, the older manuscripts are actually the ones that are the oldest manuscripts, but they've been found in newer time. And then our older translations were built off of manuscripts that were found but are actually newer than the newest ones that have been found. Does that really mess you guys up? Good. The best way to learn is to research it yourself. So some say yet and some don't. And then some people will point at this and say, well, was Jesus lying to his brothers? That's not the case in the context of the verses. He was saying he's not yet going to go up there. But that doesn't mean that he won't. It just means that he isn't going to go in the way that they wanted him to go. So he continues. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. In Galilee. So, if you feel like your family has rejected you, truly rejected you, and yet they're still using you, how does that make you feel? If they've rejected you and they're mocking you, how does that make you feel? 
And so if they're trying to encourage you to do something that you know that their intent would be different than your intent, how are you going to respond to those guys? I don't know how you'd respond, but I know how I'd respond. All the rest of you are probably holy, but I'd probably tell my family where to go. But I want to show you how Jesus responds because he's the greatest example of what true faith really is. And point number one this morning is that true faith isn't offended. Notice Jesus doesn't get offended. Sometimes it's just important for us to look at what's not in there as what is in there. See, Jesus could have responded with offense to the fact that he knows that they're trying to direct him to a people that want to kill him. He knows that they're trying to direct him maybe because they want their own fame to expand. He knows that they're trying to direct him because they're really making fun of him and they don't believe in him. And so when they're encouraging him to do this, what we don't see is that he responds to those accusations against him. Don't think that he doesn't know because he knows all things. And so how does he respond? He responds in such a way that he is not offended at what they have to say, which we should take a hard look at because so many people in America, in the world, get offended so easily. Even Christians. Like where is the difference between a Christian who believes in Jesus and the rest of the world when it comes to being offended? I believe that there's, there's very little difference most of the time when it comes to people taking up offense. We get offended over every little thing. And then when we get offended, like no time before, offense leads to division. Have you ever seen a time where offense has led to such division? I, I don't even see, like, it seems like there's very little attempt for people to even overcome the offense, to overcome their differences, to just try and, and talk it out and understand each other anymore. Like, if that's the way we're going to be, we're just going to separate. We're just going to divide. We're going to have our differences. And then we become emboldened in our differences. You know, Matthew 24, 10 through 12, Jesus says that this is what's going to take place. The church should know this. And prepare their hearts for this. When he says, and then many will be offended. When he's talking about the end days. Many will be offended. They will betray one another. They will hate one another. I don't know about you, but do you see that at all in today's world? Like never before. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. I don't know. Do you see lawlessness abounding more and more? Do you see people's love growing colder towards each other? And to think that if you really understand this verse, this, this will become more and more evident as time goes on. What I'm saying is it won't get better. It will only get worse. And so how do you prepare for not just what you're seeing and feeling today, but knowing that it's only going to get worse, you better arm yourself and prepare your heart and, and find out what we have to do to live a way that's different than the rest of the world. And I don't want to make this a topical sermon about offense, but I believe, you know, believe in it so much that I reference with one of my favorite books about this topic is that I do believe that offense is the bait of Satan. It's what he uses in order to divide and conquer offense. 
You know what? One of my favorite things uh, to watch is somebody who has the ability to maneuver through like these intense situations or conversations without getting offended. Have you ever done that? Just sit back and watch someone do that? I've, I've literally, of course, being in sales in my early years at Dave Smith's, I watched salesmen who would have people be so ridiculously mad. And I'm not saying because they, they were right in being mad. I'm saying that they were literally ridiculous in being mad, which happens sometimes. And I've watched salesmen that instead of getting offended, they were, would have the ability to not only calm the person down, but speak sense into them and turn them into a customer for life. Like, in typically in those situations, I would say that sometimes that person, because they feel like they can, listen, this happens whether you want to believe it or not. If you've never been on the side of being the salesman and always being the buyer in any sort of thing, you'll realize that customers lie. But they know that training is that we are supposed to make the customer happy. And then in most, wor most sales worlds nowadays, if you don't, then your pay will be based upon how happy that customer is because there's always these surveys. Will you please answer a survey? Press two. How satisfied were you? Right? So this is the truth. I've seen it time and again. And I'm not saying they don't make mistakes in sales. They do. They blow it. And there's times where it's justified. People are upset. They need to make it right, that sort of thing. But I'm telling you this. I remember one time that... Uh, when I was in sales, I had a customer that came and he complained about me. I didn't even know it. It went to a manager, and that manager was Lynn. <laughs> now, since Lynn's been here quite a bit lately driving from Rathdrum, uh, I can tell you more and more stories as time goes on. But Lynn calls me in his office and says, "What? Well, this guy is like super mad. And I'm like, what, what happened? What did he do? He's just said that, you know, I can't remember what he said, but he wanted a free CD player in his truck. And then Lynn got him to admit that's all that he wanted. It wasn't that I was a bad salesman. Now, I'm not saying Lynn was great at calming people down. But I've seen, my point is this, I, because of those situations, I have literally watched people walk through an irate, angry customer who is, is so upset they're being ridiculous and turn them into a lifetime customer. I love to watch that sort of thing. I have seen people that have maneuvered through uh, complete misunderstandings and calmed the situation and formed a resolution that was the original intent anyways. I've seen somebody who was getting made fun of and mocked only to turn that person that was the mocker into a friend. To me, some of those, those things that you, when you witness that, are some of the greatest things to experience in life because they should be lessons for those of us who so easily get offended on how to live life unoffended, which I believe is the way that Jesus lived his life. Why is it so cool to watch? Because so many of us struggle with it that we should be paying attention so that we can learn how to live unoffended. Everybody say that with me, unoffended. See, I don't even know if that's in the English. It's probably that you should not be offended, but it's unoffended. 
true spiritual maturity, I've said this before and I'll say it again, is not in the giftings. It's not in your, it's not in miracles. It's not in your abilities, your singing abilities, but in your ability to deal with conflict. You want to know what true spiritual maturity is? It's the ability for you when you're under pressure to be able to handle it in a godly way. It's the ability when people are coming against you for you to be able to respond in a way that Jesus tells us to respond because in all areas of pressure and and bad circumstances and horrible situations, Jesus is very clear in his word on how Christians should respond to those situations. True spiritual maturity, I don't care how gifted somebody is, how well they sing a song, how great they preach, how anointed they may come across, just as Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is nothing but a clanging symbol if they have not love. And to me, having that love is the ability to say, I don't see you with the eyes that I'm looking through right now. I'm seeing you in the way that God sees you. And I know you may be hurt or offended right now, but I love you. And if that means I have to turn the other cheek, I'll turn the other cheek. If that means that I have to endure these words that you're saying to me, then I will endure those words and I will bless you. I will pray for you. I will live unoffended so that you may see the goodness of God even in these circumstances. Spiritual maturity is the ability to forgive and continue to move forward. And this is exactly what Jesus did. His brothers are potentially mocking him, using him, making fun of him. And what does he do? He does not get dismayed. He doesn't get swayed. Because a lot of times there's that kind of pressure. And what's that pressure meant to do to people that are Christians that believe in Jesus Christ and the truth? It's to sway them from what they believe. If we put enough pressure, then they'll cave on what they believe. That what they stand on and say is their faith will then dip, will go down. They'll they'll give up aspects of their faith if we just put enough pressure on them. Jesus wasn't swayed. In fact, his response was that he was speaking truth. And his truth to them was that, you know what? The world hates me, but it doesn't hate you. Now listen, all he did was continue. He's like, okay, I'm not going to get offended at this. You guys just need to understand the world hates me and it doesn't hate you. Now he didn't go on. He stated a biblical fact, a truth. He, He could have went on and said, you know what? The world hates me because I stand for what is right in God's eyes. And you dummies consider yourselves followers of God. But the truth is your hearts are swayed by the world. And you know what? You're getting pulled into the world. And you can't see things the way that I see things this godly way. But you guys, your eyes are on fame and fortune and fulfilling the flesh and the desires of your heart. And you know what? You're so caught up in this that the world, of course, doesn't hate you because you live like the rest of the world. See, Jesus could have said those things. And what would that have done? Let me speak truth into this situation, and all I'll do is create a greater divide because now I've turned what you're saying against me. I'm speaking God's word against you rather than for you. Wait, does that make sense? You can use the sword to bring destruction or to bring life. He didn't continue to beat them up He just stated the truth. Here's the situation, guys. Now, 
he could have explained it, but the truth is that if he just lets it ride, that at some point they're going to have an understanding of what he just said to them. And the truth is, that's exactly what happened. Because if you know the story of the Gospels, eventually his brothers came to not just know who he is, but to believe in him, to have a sustaining faith in him. And that's the goal. He didn't chase them away. He just said truth. Here's the situation. You guys go on ahead. Verse 10, but when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret, meaning he didn't go the way that his family wanted him to go with a traveling caravan of people publicly entering into Jerusalem. He waited. He went secretly, privately, on his own, because Jesus' way is different than even his family's way, and that's okay. Verse 11, then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? There was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he's good, others said no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. Verse 13, however, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Everybody say fear. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Point number two, true faith isn't neutral. True faith isn't neutral. When everybody shows up to the feast in Jerusalem, thousands and thousands of people, it describes them as everybody's talking, but nobody's really saying anything, right? They're all saying he's either, oh, he's good. Oh, he's not. He's deceiving people. Oh, he's good. Oh, he's, no, he's and they're talking about Jesus in all these little circles and all these groups, but nobody's really saying anything because they have a fear inside of them of what, uh, of really speaking out about Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but when you see this, this should remind us that this is today's world. There is a much difference in what took place in Jesus' day versus what's taking place in today's world. Here's the situation. Few people deny the existence of Jesus as a historical person. Very few people will ever say that Jesus didn't exist. That would be dumb. There's too much evidence. But what they would say is that either Jesus was a good person or that he was crazy. He was a lunatic, right? And again, I'm not going to go on the rampage about people who say he was just good because he was clearly saying he was God. And then there's people who would say Jesus is bad, and some people would say he's bad because it's blasphemy, because he's claiming to be God, but people will put all sorts of reasons that they want to project on him as to why Jesus isn't good. He's divisive, he's blasphemous, he's a deceiver, whatever. They want to downplay Jesus. They were downplaying Jesus, and that's what people want to do today. Why do we downplay Jesus? Because of a fear, a fear of others. But in the middle of people downplaying him, people lying about him, people saying that he's, he's a deceiver and criticizing him, people being afraid to even stand up for him, in the midst of people wanting to harm him and even kill him, Jesus could not remain hidden in the crowd. It's so easy to get stuck in the crowd. Jesus decided at that point to stand up, to take center stage, to walk into the temple, 
and he began to explain to those people who he is. Who is Jesus? And he began to describe that. And as we'll see, he taught them why they have unbelief. In verse 15, the Jews marveled as he began to teach. How does this man know letters having never studied? They were amazed at his teaching. Just like the brothers were amazed at Jesus' miracle working, people in Galilee in that section of the country of Israel was amazed at his miracles. The crowds were amazed at Jesus' teachings. They were amazed that it sounded learned. That's what's being said right there. They were amazed that it sounded scholarly or literary or articulate or, or profound. Jesus was impressive. But listen, they weren't touched spiritually as much as they were amazed academically. All they heard was the shell of his words, not the meaning. And therefore, Jesus responds to their question of his studies. You want to know how I learned all this? Verse 16, he answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. What's he describing? Point number three about true faith is that true faith honors God. Notice Jesus, he receives this praise for how great a teaching he is. He didn't soak in the praise of how great his teachings were. Instead, he deflects the praise of his teachings from the Jews, and he gives it to God, to the Father. He's like, this teaching isn't my own. You want to know how I got this teaching? It comes from him. And then he goes on to explain the reason for your guys' unbelief is because you seek your own glory. See, if you were to want to know his will, if your will wanted to know his will, then you would know where this comes from. But because your will is all about honoring each other, then you do not understand what truth is, is what he's describing. They seek to be praised by others. And here's the real jab that he's saying, is that these people are people pleasers at heart. Here's what we got to get past as Christians. God didn't put us here to be people pleasers. That also doesn't mean that you got to be a donkey. Because your goal in not being a people pleaser is that you're being a God pleaser. Which sometimes feels like, in a sense, being more of a mat. But we want to be a donkey because of the way that it feels. Jesus said the exact same thing earlier, chapter 5, verse 44. How can you believe? He's not saying they, that he's questioning how they believe because they do believe. He's questioning, he's telling them, how can you believe? There's no question as to why you don't understand, why you don't believe. Why? He says, you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. When I talked about this in chapter 5, what I was talking about is we would rather edify and lift each other up and receive each other's honor. And so then we don't know the truth. 
We won't stand up for the truth because we don't want to offend each other. We don't want to hurt each other because we, don't, we, we want your glory. I'm afraid that I'm going to lose somebody else's honor or friendship or their love toward me or the way they treat me or the blessings that they give me if I actually honor God in this situation and not another man. Pride at its core is the craving for human approval. Pride at its core is the craving for human approval, the need to be honored and glorified. And Jesus is saying, is, is, Jesus is saying if, that, if pride is at the root, then faith can't be at the root. Faith at its core is humble gladness in the God of grace. Faith is humble gladness in the God of grace. It's not driven by the need to deserve human praise. It's driven by a thankful joy that God is for us when we deserve no praise at all. Completely different. As John Piper writes, true faith is gladness in God's grace not man's praise. Now Jesus states in verse 17 that if anyone wills to do his will, then they'll know what's being taught is is the truth. It's from God. And so the mark of truth is a passion for God exaltation, not self-exaltation. And as Jesus says in verse 18, those who seek to glorify God, those are true and righteous. And so our goal as Christians should be to know his will. And if our will will desire to know what God's will is, we'll never be deceived. Verse 19. Now Jesus addresses those who were out to kill him. And he says, did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? None of you keep the law. Because if you break even one little bit of it, you've broken all of it. Why do you seek to kill me? And the people answered and said, you have a demon. What do they mean by that? He's crazy. They're saying like, listen, you're crazy, dude. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. What's he referencing? Back in chapter 5, the healing of the, of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? In other words, he's looking at them like, what are you guys even thinking? In other words, you're okay with mutilating a body part of a baby that will need time to heal, but you're not okay with me bringing complete healing in an instant for a man. And so he looks at them and he says this verse, and this is the last verse of today. He looks at them and the way that they're thinking and the way they see God's word, because they're misinterpreting and misusing God's word. He looks at them and he says, listen, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Number four, true faith judges Righteously. See, 
this is the counter scripture of one of the most infamously misquoted verses in all of the Bible. Thou shall not judge. Half-baked Christians like to quote it all the time. And I mean half-baked. Because how could Jesus say that and then say this? Not only that are you to judge, but you're to judge righteously. It's stupid to say, don't judge. Because the truth is, everybody judges. We all judge. But Jesus is trying to get across to us, if you're going to judge, judge rightly. Judge according to his word. And he does tell us not to condemn the world in Romans, but that we're to judge each other. Like this isn't a sermon on that, so I shouldn't probably get sidetracked in that area. But there's no question that Jesus calls us to judge. He just calls us to judge rightly. And he's even telling these people that he's speaking to, like, listen, you guys, the way that you see Scripture right now, your understanding of what religion is is messed up because you're not judging rightly. Like, it doesn't even make sense that you would say that it's okay to mutilate a baby's body part and yet for me not to heal a person. Like, judge. Judge this. I'm telling you. Judge it. But judge it rightly. And so let's first look at what he's saying here, uh, not to judge according to appearance, in context. People are being misled, right, by man's added rules to God's rules concerning the Sabbath. Remember, there's at least 39 additional verses when it comes to don't work on the Sabbath that the Pharisees have added to this day. Don't work on the Sabbath, but you can circumcise a baby, just don't heal anybody. Again, what's going on? People are stuck looking at the outward appearance and they're missing the heart of the verse. In this case, it's the outward appearance of a law that states not to work on a certain day. Now, why was that given? Because the heart of what God wanted to get across is that the Sabbath was given for you. The point of the whole thing is to give people rest. Take this one day and rest. But it isn't just so that you can sleep on the couch all day and watch football. There's an additional aspect, like rest and focus on your relationship with him. That's what this is about. And so in resting and focusing on him, what does that do? It helps people become healthy. Spiritually, emotionally, and physically healthy. Because they've taken that day of rest, and yet man perverted what God intended and made it a rule that instead of giving life, it sucks life out of people. Why? Because people who have their eyes on the world and not on God, they see life superficially. They only see life on the surface level. They judge by how it looks right now. They judge by how it feels right now how it sounds right now. And many people, they looked upon the miracles of Jesus, but they missed who Jesus is. They looked upon the teachings of Jesus, but they missed the person of the teachings. They judged by outward appearance, but they missed the heart. So many people listen to, to great preachers. They listen to singers. They 
listen to even celebrities or whatever, and, and we, we take that based on the outward appearance, and we will often be caught up in it. In the Pentecostal side, anybody that has prophetic words and healings taking place, what happens? I'm telling you, having lived in this background my whole faith, is that you get caught up in the gifts because of what you see and how it makes you feel. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue the gifts of God. It just means we shouldn't get caught up in the feeling and the seeing. We should be getting caught up in what it points to, Jesus Christ. We get caught up in great teaching. We get caught up in amazing voices. Believe it or not, there's waves of Christians that get caught up in the hipness of a pastor. Anytime I turn on something that somebody's preaching, if they're wearing skinny jeans, I turn it off. Most pastors ain't skinny. We get caught up in the looks. But in all these people and all these things that are going on, the question is, what is true? In my short lifespan, I've seen pastors fall away. Just recently, probably one of the most respected pastors uh, that I have listened to and read his teachings and even taught his teachings and turned other pastors on to his teachings has fallen away. Two weeks ago after church, I went home and I saw the article and I watched the video to their church and it just crushed my heart. Because then it causes the question of what is true. We get caught up in, even in the Christian world, Christian contemporary music scene, in great voices. And there's so many worship leaders that have, worship leaders, singers that have such shallow faith. And literally, if you've been in this world very long, you will see many have fallen away from the faith. Not only fallen away, but they try and take other Christians with them when they fall away. We've seen celebrities that have supposedly come to Jesus, and because there's somebody famous, all of a sudden everybody's attracted to that celebrity in the Christian world because now they're embracing what we believe, we think. Saw it on YouTube. It's got to be true. Watched one video. It's got to be true. Most of us in here have lived long enough to see good labeled evil and evil called good. Conspiracy theories that are crazy, then crazy becomes true. We live in a day when many could be deceived. What is true? As I said at the beginning of my sermon, when it comes to the war that's going on in Israel right now, I research, and the reason why I struggle preaching on the context of end times in specifics is because there's so many great Christian teachers that don't agree. And so then I have to stand up here, and if I'm doing what I believe to be right before the Lord, is I have to point out all the different teachings of what's taking place. When I can just generally say, ever since the book of Acts ended, we live in the end times. 
Jesus is going to return, and it might be as soon as we walk outside of the church, and it might be because you croak over dead, or it might be because he appears in the sky and everybody gets caught up. Or it might be that he doesn't appear when you think he's going to appear, and then your faith's going to be challenged because you always thought that he was going to appear when he was going to appear, but he doesn't appear, and then you're going to have to endure a little bit. The point is we believe in the end times. Like, listen, I watched something this morning. I watched a video, and the greatest thing I saw is this guy that, that talks end times all the time invited somebody else who disagrees with him. And he said, here's what we believe about what's taking place right now, but only God really knows. I respect that. But when I listen to this, what I want to point out to us is what is true. Because they're talking about this is a war that's the Psalm 83 war. And then they're saying, no, that already took place in 1948 or 1969 or 1972. And, and so there's this war, but this war is still to come. And this guy's saying, no, that it isn't, that this is the Ezekiel war. This is the pre-war to the Ezekiel war, the Ezekiel war that then will lead to the Revelation war. Or, but the Revelation war is what takes place in the millennium. Like, this is definitely not good. War isn't good. This could be a precursor. It could be a preview to the war that will lead. But this could be it. Because if you pay attention to the news, you'll see that just yesterday, a majority of the Arab nations, Sunnis and Shiites, now if you know anything about history, they don't get along. They fight and they kill each other. But yesterday they united in Saudi Arabia to speak against Israel and give the U.S. a chance to try and stop what's taking place. Now, in all of the things that I've seen in my lifetime, I've never seen the Muslims unite that are Sunni and Shiite. But if there's one thing they could unite over, it's uniting over God's people, God's nation. And it's what's going to lead eventually to that war. Now, I say all that because my question is, what is true? In all of this, what does it do to our faith? Like, we can't even handle when something bad happens and our faith gets challenged. We can't, hap we can't handle when we accidentally pull out in front of somebody at the four-way stop sign in Kellogg without actually realizing, you know, because I'm getting old and I think that I look, but I didn't look and I pull out and they flip me off. Like, I can't even handle when somebody flips me off, <laughs> let alone... My faith responding rightly to major world uh, incidences that are going to bring great repercussions on the church. Like, how does our faith sustain? How do we know what is true? That's what John's trying to teach through all of this. Like, here's what true faith is. The question the Apostle John is answering is this question. What is true? People are so offended that they want to kill. People are complaining, lying, and deceiving. Others, they just hide in the crowd or behind the protective walls of the internet. They fear taking a public stand because it might cost them honor, among others. Others that they have judged by outward appearance as being something good. But in the middle of the growing craziness, Jesus shows what it is to be true. True faith isn't offended. True faith isn't neutral. True faith honors God, and true faith judges righteously. My prayer is
is that we will grow to have true faith.